Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Ed, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you please introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. My name is Ed Alwood. Uh, I am a former journalist. Uh, I continue to teach journalism, and uh, journalism is still a passion of mine. When it comes to teaching about journalism, what exactly do you teach about journalism? Well, um, I, I've had three careers. I was in uh, as a reporter for 14 years in television. Uh, and then I was in media relations for a few years and then uh, got a fellowship to earn a Ph.D. in mass communication and then began teaching in 2000. And I taught at uh, Temple University for a couple of years. Then I taught for quite a number of years at a school called Quinnipiac University in Connecticut. But all that time, I still maintain my home here in D.C., and so when I retired from Quinnipiac, I moved back to D.C., and uh, the University of Maryland was nice enough to uh, offer me uh, an opportunity to teach there. So I've been teaching as an adjunct professor at the University of Maryland since uh, 2015. So I've taught a number of courses. Uh, the Bedrock course has been broadcast news writing, but I've also taught uh, broadcast production, uh, broadcast performance. Um, and now I've also taught uh, on the other side, the theoretical side, uh, journalism history and uh, journalism ethics. I noticed you had uh, a better setup than some people I talk to. Uh, usually I see the top of their forehead and that's kind of it because they don't realize the cameras. It's good to place back a little bit. But when it comes to journalism, I mean, what are your thoughts compared to when you began these learning and talking about? journalism and compared to where they ended because i guess maybe from a younger generation's point of view um i don't know about journalism anymore i know what people call variations of journalism but i've learned so much about and i don't respect really media in general when it comes to main news corporations and i think that's just because i know a little bit more about the history um whether it's operation mockingbird or things of this sort but people even i've been yelled at before about I technically should consider myself an independent journalist and I should live by those standards. But the way that they use it is like, I can't talk to this person because they're right wing or I can't talk to this person because they're left wing. And I'm like, isn't being a journalist just talking to both sides of the argument or whatever it is and trying to get, I mean, obviously people are going to have their own perspectives, but we're living in an age where media is everything and it gets a little bit difficult to be able to just find the truth. It's just whatever fits your narrative. It's it's very muddled, and uh, for that, a lot of us are very sad. Um, <clears throat> about two weeks ago, I attended the memorial service for Bernard Shaw, uh, who was uh, a legend at CNN, and uh, and the memorial service drew a lot of the former CNN people that I worked with when I was at CNN, um, who've uh, pretty much retired. The only one. I think the only one who was there who hadn't retired was a Wolf Blitzer. Uh, Judy Woodruff was there, but she just retired last Friday. And all of us were lamenting how the profession had changed so much. And not only that, but how even uh, organizations like CNN had changed so much. And I could get into my views about uh, those types of changes with CNN, but I see that more as a result of market forces than anything. But uh, to get back to your point, it's a very, it's very muddled right now. Um, the words that we thought were clear maybe five years ago, 10 years ago, are not clear anymore. And what do we talk about when we're, when we're talking about journalists? What do we mean by journalism? Um, and I can tell you that what I tell my students is journalism is, yes, it's a profession. Uh, yes, people work in journalism, 
But the way I define it is journalism is a process. And it is a process that journalists, professional journalists are taught in the way of gathering and presenting information to a mass audience. Now, anybody can do journalism, yes. Um, and anybody can be a citizen journalist, very much like that young woman who took the pictures of um, of the fellow who who uh, set off the Black Lives Matter, whose name is George uh, George Fraser. Um, she was a citizen journalist. She was performing the job of a journalist, but she wasn't a trained journalist. And thank goodness for her, because there was no way a trained journalist could have been there at the right moment uh, to capture that. She captured it, and her video set off uh, protests around the world. You mean George Floyd? I'm sorry, George Floyd. Yes, yes, I'm sorry. I, I was close, but I couldn't quite get there. Um, George Floyd, yes, set off protests around the world, um, which was phenomenal. But um, there are people calling themselves journalists who are not doing journalism the way I just described it. Uh, and it, it's heartbreaking for all of us who helped cultivate the business, make the business a respectable, dependable business. Now having people using the terms we used for something that's not at all uh, related to what we used to do. Um, when someone ever considered me a journalist, I always said I'm not. I'm just a 24-year-old. Well, now I'm 25, but I'm a jackass with a microphone um, just because I think what only benefit I do is I'm able to talk to people and highlight a lot of the work that they have done. I've met plenty of people, and it stinks because when you look at journalism, um, the people that investigate the very controversial subjects, um, the conspiracy subjects, JFK being a prime example – these people have done some insane detailed work from Freedom of Information Act filing and all this, and I think they can only do that because they're not attached to a certain label or an organization. Now, the issue is that when you talk about media and we talk about blaming the media, a lot of people blame CNN or Fox, and they go, they're all just a bunch of talking heads. I go, you're labeling these people as they're not human. They're human. But you got to understand they have a job and the job necessarily has might have business interests that are invested. Let's say a kid comes up with a nice, fresh story on an airplane manufacturing company and goes, hey, their parts are messed up. Here's this. We can't run that because we're in business with that person. That makes a lot of sense for people. But then they just blame the whole institution. I go, well, that is kind of this deal we have with media, marketing and so many other things. But then we have the intercept. We have all these sites out there now that can really give you some good stories that might not necessarily be covered by the mainstream news but even then people label it something political or like that so i'm like what is the age of journalism now is it just going to be done with or is it going to be maybe everybody's a journalist and you can look at a conspiracy blog or things of this sort but i that it leaves the question open to should we listen to journalism or should we just find what we agree with let me uh, back up for just a minute okay. and uh, said a lot. give you um, give you a little bit of a perspective that I think may tie into what you're saying. Uh, because I teach journalism history, and if I dive too deep into it, stop me. But uh, uh, our journalism in America um, was brought over from Great Britain, and we adopted some of it and rejected some of it. And the part we rejected was where journalists had to be licensed by the government. And uh, we had a case uh, with John Peter Zinger, who criticized the governor of uh, New York State and was put in jail. And his lawyer, Alexander Hamilton, uh, defended him and claimed that he couldn't be prosecuted because what he reported was the truth. So the truth became a defense in the United States for journalism. And it also showed that uh, we did not want in this country to license journalists because it would make them too political. The Republicans would only license Republican journalists, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted, uh, we, I, I sound like I was there. I was not, just for the record. Um, but people like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson wanted the press to be a forum where 
politics could be debated. And uh, at that time, though, all of the media, meaning newspapers, that's all the technology we had, were allied with the political party. So the Republicans had their newspapers, Democrats had their newspapers, et cetera. And they were all subscription. At that time, they were all expensive. Um, and they were pretty well, almost totally uh, the terrain of white men, because those were landowners and those were the voters. It changed. Technology changed it. In the late 1800s, the steam press came along, and they could print a lot of newspapers at a very cheap uh, amount of money. And so uh, people like uh, uh, Joseph Pulitzer, William Randolph Hearst, uh, got into the, the business of journalism, and by then it had become a business. And a business model developed. And that business model said, sell the newspaper as cheap as you can, like a penny, the penny press, and make your money by selling advertising. And the only way that people are going to advertise in your paper is to have a huge audience. And the only way you're going to have a huge audience is not to play to one side or the other, but to have a balanced look so that both Republicans would read your newspaper, Democrats would read your newspaper, liberals would read it, conservatives would read it, et cetera. And that model stayed in effect until the internet came along. And that's what's happened today. The internet has broken the business model that developed in the late 1800s. And the media have not been able to find a business model that will replace it. Not only that, but uh, you mentioned Fox News. Fox had a tremendous impact on journalism, as everybody knows. But the reason it had such a big impact is Roger Ailes said, we don't need to have that penny press business model anymore. He said, there are enough conservatives out there that they will support, like we had way back uh, during the colonial era, they will support a media of their own. So we've actually come full circle. And we now have, as people point out, uh, media that cater to Democrats, media that cater to Republicans, to conservatives, et cetera. So we've kind of come full circle with that. So that's, that's what we're seeing today. And that's because of the technological change, just like the technological change with the printing press, the technological change with the internet has changed journalism and so I'll pause there. When it comes to the creation of the internet or just the internet kind of tossing a monkey wrench into the original structure of journalism, I mean, that's just, is that just from individual sources and now everyone can kind of have this free access to look up information and be able to write it down? Or does that just, I mean, because that sounds like a little bit like a monopoly before the age of the internet, just different or very selected few competitors that are, you know, these only independent sources. But I think we land in the realm now, even with the whole circling around, is that the truth has been gone. And I don't know how long I, I don't know where the truth where's the truth. That's the real question. I mean, do you believe Fox because it sides with your views, or do you believe CNN that sides with your views? It's like before I don't was that like that when before the age of the internet where you could just pick and choose your side, or was a reporting a story reporting a story? Well, it was that way in the colonial era. And then that went away and journalism became more professional. Um, William Randolph Hearst ran very, very sensational stories. Uh, he would, uh, to attract an audience, he, he would send a reporter out uh, on a boat in the New York Harbor and have the reporter jump off the boat to time how long it would take the city to rescue the reporter. And that would become the story. It was very, very sensational story, sob stories, for instance. Oh, this poor, this poor person who's uh, who's homeless, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Joseph Pulitzer competed with that for quite a number of years, but he also had some posters in his newsroom that said accuracy, 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 facts, facts, facts. And so during that era in the late 1800s, early 1900s, journalism became more and more professional. And what they were doing was building their credibility. And that was helping them. They not only needed eyeballs to be able to sell to advertisers, 
but they also needed credibility to bring in more and more eyeballs. And so what you've seen is a change. And yes, you're right. Uh, there was something of a monopoly. And the, the, the characteristic of the monopoly was that you had to have a lot of money. You had to have a lot of money to, to buy a printing press. You had to hire all these reporters. You had to have you had to have delivery trucks and drivers, which cost a lot of money. So you had the Pulitzer and you had the Hearst doing this. Well, now, and you are a shining example with your podcast. Now you don't need that much money. You can reach a huge audience for really just a few dollars. Buy a camera, buy a router, buy a Wi-Fi, buy a microphone like you have there, sign up with uh, Zoom. You're a publisher. That's the scary part to me is um, I just because I look at the age of journalism when people used to go and report stories. I mean, I, I can base some stuff off of the movie Nightcrawler with Jake Gyllenhaal. I don't know if you ever seen that where he was reporting things and eventually he couldn't find a story. So he started kind of creating his own stories, like watching car accidents happen and being right there. Like the Nick, it looks like he's just there as coincidence. I go with reporting now. I mean, back in the day, it was way more respected. And in my opinion, it seems more like the, the, I guess the industry kind of narrowed it down to only select individuals could be independent journalists. Now it seems like you mentioned the word journalist. Anybody, I could be a journalist. I'm technically a journalist. And I'm like, I don't know if that's good. Um, I think that there needs to be this credibility because when you take away the credibility from how, I guess, skewed the audience or the skewed the members of journalistic integrity are, you start going, well, then they're just the same level as me. And then there's no value in that word journalism anymore. It becomes this thing of just people writing down individual thoughts. And that I, I guess that's a broad brush from the internet that created that. But I mean, I could be wrong in saying that. Well, let me explain something. If you cut your finger, if you were sitting here near me and cut your finger, I could apply a Band-Aid to your finger. That doesn't make me a doctor. And it's the same thing with journalism. Just because people can write down information, just because they can buy a camera, like I bought this camera and you bought your camera, that doesn't alone make, make us journalists. That's why I say, to me, journalism is a process. And to me, Journalists are the people who have studied and learned the process and to a large extent adhere to the process. Now, are there some exceptions? Yes. But you know, it's funny. I was going to mention a minute ago and I forgot to do it. You mentioned that you don't consider yourself a journalist. At least that's what I remember you saying. And, and it's interesting to me that Stephen Colbert doesn't either. And I've seen in, in uh, interviews with him, while he does some journalism, he doesn't consider himself a journalist. Um, so the whole idea of, of journalist and journalism has gotten very, very muddled. Um, and maybe it was a mistake that we didn't license journalists. Maybe it was a mistake that the journalism profession didn't come up with a way of licensing, licensing journalists like lawyers came up with a bar exam. Maybe we should have done that. But uh, it's, it's too late for that. But here's the thing. The way it's come come out today is uh, the reigning view by a lot of people who lament what's going on with this muddled situation is that what we need to do now is train the consumer very much like financial advisors have to train the consumer to be uh, to to care for their checkbook, to care for their investments and those types of things. So there are all kinds of schools, mainly elementary schools, but moving up into junior high and high schools that now have media literacy courses. And even the University of Maryland has media literacy courses. I'm sure other universities do too. Um, but we say, see, part of the job now is to train consumers into ferreting out the most reliable sources of information and teaching them what journalism is supposed to be and letting them evaluate the sources to see which they will choose very much like they choose a bank or a lawyer or a doctor. 
I try my best. If I say something, I'm, I usually just try to tell people, look it up. You know, if you want to look it up and correct, there's probably something I end up getting wrong. I always tell people I don't really know everything. Um, I don't, I honestly don't know anything, but when it comes to journalistic integrity, do you think like the dangers of the government influence onto the freedom of the press? I mean, I, I've been recently this morning, I was looking over some old CIA document stuff. It's on their website. Anybody can find them. They're just newspaper clippings, but there's one from James Jesus Angleton, who was a director. Um, and he made a quote and he talked about the reason why we intelligence services capture the media or do these things is because the American public can't understand why we need to do the things that we do. It's stuff that I've talked about for a while, but it kind of goes into this aspect of, well, the press ever be free and he mentions the freedom of press is the illusion that the american public wants it to perceive and i'm just like that's such a wh what and it's just like this kind of like we all know the stereotype of you can't trust the media and your news outlet but there's like this guy's really kind of talking about it and it, i mean he's looking at it from more of a patriotic standpoint rather than an evil one which is the way the public sometimes hear things and it makes a very smart strategic sense but it lands into this realm where i start thinking about a person that has a scoop on a story but realizing maybe they shouldn't even research it any farther because of the aspect of it's not going to get them anything from the corporation that they're hired under you know, I mean, there's a book by Tom O'Neill about uh, called Chaos about the Manson murders, and he exposed a lot of 20 year investigation into this. And his went through many different publishing companies that gave him money, sued him and then gave up on him because it was taking him so long. But he wanted to make sure he got every detail filing Freedom of Inf Information Acts. And I go, that's not the norm. You got a person that has a family they need to feed and a living they have to do all this and you're going to take away everything that they have their funding kick them out to the curb because they're taking too long on a story i go that's going to be a story they're going to pass up and then when does the truth come out and yeah um and you hit on a number of things there uh, the the one of the sad things that's happening is um some of the internet organizations uh google and and youtube and uh, Yahoo, I'll point at specifically, um, carry advertising. And uh, they're good at it. A lot of people see the ads, and a lot of companies and organizations and producers want to place their ads with them. And it's not only because there's so many eyeballs, like back at the penny press days, so many eyeballs looking at the Yahoos and the Googles, but it's also because they don't have the cost overhead of an NBC, a CBS, uh, Washington Post, and they can offer advertising for a very small amount of money, which is which is very very good. But they don't have a newsroom; they don't have the expense of gathering news and putting news out there. So what I'm getting at is the advertising that they're drawing away from the NBCs, the CBSs, the the substantial reliable journalism is now making it harder and harder for those journalism organizations to do quality journalism. Like you said, these publications and broadcast centers need to pay people to be able to put food on the table. Well, if they can't draw enough advertising because of the competition from, uh, oh, and 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 uh, um, some, of, some of the big ones with uh, Craig Newhart, uh, Newharth with his his uh, drawing away all the uh, classified ads just cost a bundle for the newspapers, um, newspapers in particular, not TV so much, but newspapers. And so it it's really kind of crippled. Uh, that's another thing that's crippled the the business model that uh, that we have had. Um, and it's very hard now for not only, a, there's so many outlets in print that have closed. It's very hard now for a very hard, a journalist, a young journalists coming out of school who are trained journalists to find a job. And even harder to find a job that's going to pay them enough money to put food on the table. And we, the public, suffer from that because less information is out there. I'll give you, uh, for instance, that's, that's in the news today. That uh, newly elected congressman in New York State that has been found out uh, to be a fraud, 
was uncovered by the New York Times. Now, it took a lot of time to do that work, and it cost the New York Times a lot of money to set aside those reporters, I don't know how many there were, uh, their salaries for all of that time, not working on another story. So all of that costs a lot of money, but the public benefits from it. And if the, and if the Times is not going to do it, if journalism's not going to do it or can't afford to do it, who's going to do it? Do you think that it would be easier to have a lot of these independent corporations or these news outlets not be in fear of some type of ramifications if they do report on a story i always look at like a scandal that comes out about a congressman i go that guy must have really messed up because it's not like they had a story that they were just sitting on it was more like they know the ramifications when you it's like um i, I only thing i could really give a good example about would be during uh the johnson's administration before he became president it's the reason why people think johnson was the killer of kennedy which is no um but they said he had a bunch of scandals and they all dropped when he became president and I go, yeah, well, it's not in their best interest to start talking trash on the president, you know, the newly elected president. But there was a lot of things that started to kind of be weird. Why did everybody just agree with, you know, the same interviewed people, chose to interview star witnesses? And I go, well, they agree with the official story by the Warren Commission, and the Warren Commission was more than happy to give them exclusives and all this. I go, there was no – there's even the people that are conspiracy-sided now, they don't – they don't gain anything from it. They have everything to lose. If you were Geraldo, I think Geraldo Rivera was the one who played the Zapruder film um, in front of everybody. And even that was like, what? And that was the first time that ever happened. And it was kind of like this opening moment where it's like, yeah, you can still get the views that you want. But now I feel like it's gone to the extreme, which is the most insane thing possible is going to get you the views. And that's how they want to get their audience now. Like someone has to be, secretly murdering people in their free time or something like that and i'm like i don't i just want to know what's going on i don't look to the news to you know be entertained i looked at it to be informed well uh, if if you look at all the things i listed that have changed for instance from the colonial era the one thing that has not changed is humans we still are psychologically drawn to the same types of things that uh, we have been since the age of man or woman. Um, and therefore, conflict draws our attention. Fear draws our attention. Chaos. And so that's part of what Fox News tapped into, was to find that uh, that type of chaos, uh, dredging up conflict, would draw draw an audience, even though it's irresponsible. Um, and Donald Trump figured it out, too. A lot of uh, his press was built on the idea of chaos. Throw a monkey wrench in it, and you will draw attention from the press, and it will get, uh, and, and not only from the press, but, but uh, from uh, Twitter uh, going directly to the public, and you will draw a lot of eyeballs. But going to an earlier point that you made about, well, what can solve the problem? Uh, I mentioned one thing, and that is uh, media literacy. But the other thing that's being talked about, and I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball that's clear enough to say, but uh, uh, nonprofit journalism may be the route to go to. And uh, we see some examples of that. We see um, NPR radio, we see uh, public broadcasting, such as the News Hour. We also see investigative reporting where some philanthropists have put up money that uh, that uh, supports ProPublica, and they have done some terrific work. There's still the idea that, okay, these, these organizations still rely on grants, and grant providers may have some sway in it. Uh, however, it's not, it's not the type of, of uh, pressure that uh, you're talking about. We've always had a pressure. I remember doing stories when I worked in at, at a television station in uh, Orlando, Florida, and I was doing a story about uh, an automobile that had uh, had a problem, uh, some sort of uh, malfunction. And uh, I was going to the dealer to do an interview about this malfunction. And the 
general manager of the TV station who oversees everything from news to finance, et cetera, but, but is far more involved with the, the financial part of the TV station than the news department. He went to the news director and said, I don't know if we really ought to do this story because that dealership may cancel their ads. Well, yeah, that's a pressure. And it takes a very strong news director to say, look, this story is important enough. We need to do it whether they cancel their ads or not. Or go the other way and say, you're right. We need to leave it alone. We need to earn our money. And you'll find both out there. And we need to be aware of that. When it comes to the press code, isn't there like a guideline or ethics that journalism and all that kind of goes by? I've known some from like, you never mess with press photographs. You never alter, edit, you never do anything like that, even though that happens in some cases on some things, maybe small little adjustments, whether it's seen as a good thing. I think I, example I can use is Bobby Kennedy when he's lying on the ground and that waiter's holding him. Life magazine chose to cut out the tie. It was a clip on and they thought like... I, to, to be honest, I don't think I, I mean, maybe it's our fault as the public because we think that would change anything. But to me, I go, it's a you keep it in its entirety, especially something that ends up being historical like it is. But I mean, is there any guidelines or ethics when it comes to press and photographs and video? Yes. And I use one in my class. I'm glad to know about the Bobby Kennedy one. I didn't know that. <clears throat> I use one in my class. Uh, if you hold up the covers of Time magazine and Newsweek. Uh, they both had uh, the mugshot of O.J. Simpson after he was arrested. And the time one darkened his face. It's exactly the same picture. But Time magazine darkened his face. And the reason was it made him look more sinister. Well, for the point they were trying to make with the story that he had been arrested, it was a mugshot. They seemed to think that made sense. But you don't play with a picture like that. The thing that bothers me, and we're going to see more and more and more about this, is uh, what they call uh, deep fake uh, video or 3D video, where you can take, uh, uh, well, for instance, Vladimir Putin, and you can put words in his mouth um, in the video where he says something like, and I'm, of course, making this up, he could say, I've just launched missiles that are destined for New York City. Now, if we see that video pop up on our television sets, if, if, if we are hacked and it comes up on our television sets, we don't know if that's true or not. It looks like him. It sounds like him. Now, we also don't have enough time to check it out before pressing our own buttons to either bomb Moscow or shoot this missile down. So what do we do? And that is on the minds of people on Capitol Hill now. Some of them, some of them have mentioned it in some of the hearings. I do know uh, from some public information that DARPA, and you know DARPA, the creator of the internet, part of the government that then turned the internet over to private industry, DARPA is working on ways to detect what is fake video, 3D video, and what is real. But again, it's gonna take time. And uh, believing what we see and react to it right away is, is going to be a, a scary thing. It's bad because we've gone such in a bad way when it comes to just profiting off of outrage. Um, it seems like everything happens to be some type of doom and gloom topic. And I get it gets the views and I think even you got an independent podcaster like Joe Rogan that ends up eclipsing basically every giant media news outlet in such a way. Um, he does talk to various people. I'm a fan of his, but I think it's mostly because I'm not hearing like a sided story on some things. I think it's interesting. That's kind of what I do is try and talk to each individual, no matter your political side on things. But then I just see them slander him and try their best to go after him. And that's when I just go, I mean, is there any ethics that doesn't have to go off of outrage. I mean, can we get back to a point where there was set rules and regulations when it came to, I mean, even look at, take it back. Let's take it back to the Vietnam war when those photos were shown to everybody and everyone got to see what the hell was going on over there. I mean, you're doing it now from more of a patriotic standpoint and you're trying to build up morale as a country. It's a good thing to do. It's your soldiers definitely want to hear your prayers. And, you know, you, I think it sparked up morale in a sense, but 
then also the damage of showing such gory photos on air and showing it to the public and showing some horrible scenarios you have people wanting to see more of that but at the same time they also want to see it go a little bit further and the press realizes how much attention it can get and they want to push those a little bit further so there's no good act or there's no act that comes without maybe a benefit and a risk um yeah um there are ethical standards in all the professions there is for law there is for medicine, um, even even uh, even real estate. Um, we in journalism have uh, written uh, codes of ethics from what used to be called Sigma Delta Chi. It's now called the, the uh, Professional Journalist uh, Association, and it recognizes that we have a duty to the people we report on to be fair to quoting them and taking sound bites from them. We have a duty to the public to be honest with them and to do a thorough job to inform them. And we have a duty to our employer. And so in my course, I mentioned a front page article in Rolling Stone magazine about uh, gang rape at the University of Virginia and it was very, very, very badly, badly sourced and uh, and really put some of the deans there in very bad light. Uh, and one of the deans was successful in suing Rolling Stone magazine for millions of dollars, and the magazine has been sold. So that is part of the responsibility of a journalist is not to put your employer in such a bad, uh, bad position. The Rolling Stone used to be so good. It used to be so great. I don't know what happened to it. Absolutely. Well, uh, what happened to it was uh, what I think, and I'm no expert on this, but what happened to it was what we see happening into most mainstream journalism. More and more it had competition, and more and more it tried to prop up its readership, and therefore it tried to figure out exactly what would do that and and aim for the lowest common denominator. And that's where, where we see most journalism goings, unfortunately, and we're going to suffer from it. Uh, thank goodness the uh, New York Times is still in business, is still able to spend a lot of money to, to keep an eye on, and it's the watchdog part of journalism, to keep an eye on people like this fellow in, in uh, New York State who is not, who he's, and was elected, who's not who he says he is. What would you say would be the golden age of press in your mind, at least from what we've encountered so far compared to the past? Yeah, uh, it's funny because I think the golden age of, of print journalism was uh, in that period in the, uh, the 1920s, 1930s, and 1940s in particular, especially when there's a war. Um, and in the 19 hundreds, we didn't have television. We didn't even have radio. So for the First World War, the print press was the only way, and some uh, um, uh, theatrical um, uh, movie-tone movie uh, newsreels would help in movie theaters, but, but, but journalism was the only way people understood what the war was about. Um, and then Life Magazine came along with pictures. And we hadn't had TV yet, so we didn't have pictures. That was the only way we knew pictures. Uh, then we had radio that gave us sound, and then television came along, and everybody predicted, oh, that's the end of radio. Nobody will listen to radio anymore because now we have pictures to go with uh, with radio. And that didn't happen. We still have radio, still have pictures. So for print, it was definitely the period between, in my, in my estimation, between the 1920s and the, the 1950s. Uh, because mainly because of the wars, and then with television and broadcast, it it came later, and it came in the in the seventies, and uh, and the civil rights movement became the the really big catalyst for uh, for television, for broadcast, uh, and you can think of the uh, the footage that was shot in Selma, Alabama, for instance, with with the protests there, the protesters, uh, the Freedom Riders, and people. People could see on television who they were. 
Um, and and it, it was clear from watching television, for instance, that some of the rumors about what these people were like were just wrong. And people could see that for themselves. What come, uh, when it comes to the worst period for media, um, you can't say it right now. You just got to something through history, something that you feel like was just where it kind of started going downhill a little bit. I would have said the late fifties, the sixties and seventies. Um, maybe that's just cause where it's been, where my mind's at, but not just even worse in the sense of like just reporting. I mean, I am upset with life magazine that they bought the Zapruder film and stored it. I was like, damn, you guys had the number one scoop and you guys stored it. But we know for mockingbird that there was a bunch of people, life editors and a couple of things that started kind of getting a connection. But, um, even seeing Jack Ruby shoot Lee Harvey Oswald um, for the public, that's a traumatic thing, much like 9-11 for a lot of people watching was a traumatic thing for the public to see. There's just been some – I guess it's two two questions for you. Disastrous, worst incident ever on film and or just in media in general, worst reporting, and then an actual like horrific event that you feel like impacted a lot of people because of its tragedy. Well, strangely, uh, the best reporting and worst reporting, I think, was during the Vietnam War. And uh, I think there were reporters uh, who were under pressure not to report some of the things that, that should have been reported uh, because they knew that the Defense Department would throw them out of out of the battleground area and that would end there. In like their, their goat pills, right? Their marijuana and the heroin and all that that was going on over there? Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, there were a few, Neil Sheehan uh, and, uh, and a few others were uh, for the New York Times. But the Times had enough clout. They could tell the Pentagon, no, my reporter is staying. And no, we can pay the freight. But in general, reporters. And I, I think, uh, and, and of course, Nixon made the point that eventually when reporters came around that it was the reporting that turned America against the war and caused the pullout. So uh, that's why I say it was the, the worst of times. Some reporters didn't step up to the plate and do their jobs properly. And it was the best of times because some reporters did step up to the plate and the repu the, the, the public responded uh, in a way that was, uh, that was appropriate. As far as... Uh, catastrophes. You know, uh, it's funny, because if you look back at what was the first one, it would probably be the Hindenburg. And the Hindenburg uh, helium blimp that came from, from Europe over to New Jersey and exploded. And and you can listen online, you can find it, the, uh, the live coverage on radio, of radio uh, uh, commentators describing it and and talking about how impressive it was that it was pulling in and then all of a sudden it burst into flames. And uh, you can hear the passion and drama in their voices, which is, of course, what radio is so good for. So I think that was the first one uh, that I know of uh, as far as, as broadcast. And then, yeah, I mean, 9-11 and, uh, and seeing those planes uh, crash in to the building live was uh, was pretty horrendous. Do you think that when it comes to those traumatic events, whoever's the one that's broadcasting when that event happens, the live coverage, do you think that we just adapt or kind of connect emotionally to that person? Like Walter Cronkite. There's plenty of people reporting on the JFK assassination, but Walter Cronkite is like unanimously accepted as like the main person, like everyone was tuning in. Um, I've seen the broadcast of his over and over again, but I've listened to every other station that was reporting on the assassination. I mean, I get it. It's like updating the public because something serious just happened, but so many things that went wrong with there that opened up the door for a lot of issues that came down later on understanding the historical record. And that was speculation. He was still alive. Um, and a bunch of things, rifle changes, this rifle went through so many different variations. And even looking through some of those press photos, 
the Newmans are holding their kid on the lawn after the bullets just rang out. And you see the press with the camera. I'm like, what are you doing? The last thing I would be doing is taking a photo, but that's like press integrity is to keep the camera rolling no matter what's going on, which is, you know, we got a lot of good shots from that as well too, but it's just like, oh my God, it's like either the sacrifice that people have to go through or just what people will do just to get their name in anything. I mean, just an aspect of being able to be, this is the photojournalist that did this. This is the person that reported on this. They're making sure they do their best job. And at the same time, I mean, depending on where you stand on Walter Cronkite, I mean, later came out a couple of things. It's interesting you would mention this. Um, and of course, after I did journalism, I then studied media. Which, which gives you a whole different look uh, at it and a different perspective. It's like, it's like if I were there where you are right now, and uh, we were looking at you on the screen, and I move the lights, we would see a little bit different perspective of you. And for me, uh, studying it and getting a PhD in mass communication did that. It it kind of rotated the light on journalism for me to see some some other aspects of it. And so for me, one of the things that's interesting is if you take a newspaper, the majority of the content of a newspaper is news. There's some entertainment, such as the comics, the crossword puzzle, but they're a very small part of the content of a newspaper. But if you take television, the majority of the content of television is entertainment, versus news. It's just the opposite. And I have found that there are some people who can't distinguish what's real and what's not real from television because of this. Um, which is a very hard thing to get to, to get past. Um, television had a lot of credibility as much credibility as newspapers up until the 1950s. And you know what happened? The quiz show scandals came. In the 1950s, people trusted television to be uh, above board, to be honest. And all of a sudden, they found that one of these shows that they trusted, which was an entertainment show, had been feeding the answers to some of the panelists to create drama. And America was stunned that this apparatus in their living room that they so trusted and had every reason to trust up until that point had let them down. And from then on, America did not see television in the same light as we saw newspapers. I've seen some footage of Nixon um, when he's given like a news station cast or something that like someone's interviewing him. And there's a couple of off camera stuff you can find on there too where they just didn't use it in the live broadcast they just kind of kept it as like a blooper but the guy was asking him about johnson because what do you think of that book about johnson he goes oh yeah that one rich Raman. no not that one this one and he goes i know they made him look like a damn animal and he goes he was an animal and then he does this weird laugh and i just go oh my god like that to me like listening to the white house tapes listening to so much like hearing kennedy yell at someone and say the f word because the guy spent money on chairs and it was on a broadcast i'm like that's what i want i was like i hate that there's applied pressure not only media being applied by marketing as well too but this as the public you know the public accepts a lot of really dark and really kind of in their stuff and they want to see it they love that outrage stuff but then there's like very simple stuff that we just are baffled by where we clutch pearls, hearing a president curse on screen, seeing a president that's not a Christian, seeing like these weird things where they don't seem really big because society has kind of changed pretty quickly. But even hearing Kennedy curse, it me, to me, I'm like, it gives me more respect for the guy. It makes me realize that there's a professional side and then a personal side, but we never, ever saw the personal side before. And I feel like even that's with it today, besides whatever Trump says or whatever kind of gets talked about in an entertainment format today. But look at all of our presidents. A lot of our presidents have been very serious, very like they're delivering a message, which is what you want in a speaker as well, too. But never anybody just goes. I don't know. And 
is would that be the biggest shocking thing for people but it's also you know our responsibility as the public that when we do receive information we do find out from other various sources to see if it's true not just jump off on the first thing that we hear but also the pressure that we apply on people to be able to give exactly what we want in the exact moment that we want it um i'm not i don't know if what i'm about to say is exactly connected with what you just said, but let's try. Uh, I've seen footage where uh, Trump, for instance, slipped on a sidewalk. I've seen footage where uh, Biden uh, tripped on a misstep going upstairs to a, a plane in the news. But what, I, what you won't see is Franklin D. Roosevelt on crutches. The press, throughout the press, agreed not to show this. Now, I don't, I don't know if the press would be seen as biased in the Franklin Roosevelt days because they didn't do that, uh, or if they would be seen as uh, as lying to the public and leading to them to believe that this man uh, could uh, get around normally. But I do know that the press has changed in that way because the press is willing to show a uh, a Trump uh, slipping on a sidewalk and a and a a Biden tripping on a stairs. Uh, so something's definitely changed in that regard. Um, I personally have a lot of respect for the press that didn't show Roosevelt with the crutches. That's a very admirable thing. Yeah, I think it's very, very admirable too, um, and um, I don't think they should make light of a president uh, slipping somewhere, possibly getting hurt. But uh, but but something has changed, and I think part of it has to do also with how the press thinks the public would respond. If the press had shown Roosevelt on crutches, I think the public would have turned against them. I think they would have said you're you're invading someone's someone's privacy. Let me give you another example that came to mind a minute ago, and I forgot to mention it. For the Roosevelt one, do you think that it would be seen as more like we need to keep the vision of our president being strong? It's like why it's dangerous reporting on somebody tripping upstairs or anything like that because it gets clipped. But also, our other countries see that, other world leaders see that, and they take us less seriously. And that's a domestic and national security issue. Yes, and is that something the press should be concerned about? Yes. Um, I use an example in my class, and uh, my students generally uh, disagree with me to the mat on this. Uh, there was a photo of uh, a Lance Corporal from uh, Oregon who was fighting in Afghanistan. And um, an embedded Reuters, I'm sorry, AP photographer uh, took a picture of him after he was mortally wounded in combat. And uh, very soon after this photo was taken, he died. Uh, his family asked that AP not run the picture. The Pentagon asked, the Secretary of Defense asked that AP not run the picture. And AP ran the picture. And the reason they ran it and I have a clip of the head of AP Photos telling the reasons. And this is part of journalism ethics. And the reason they ran it is because uh, all of the reporting, I mean, all of the reporting on the US fighting in Afghanistan was statistics. This number, just like in, in Vietnam, and this also was a big issue in Vietnam. Uh, you might, uh, You might know uh, and and even in uh, even in Afghanistan under President Bush, they forbade any press photographers from taking pictures of caskets arriving back from the war in at Dover Air Force Base because it would have an effect on public morale to support the war. That's Holland's fear of influence, isn't it? Uh, could be you're you're ahead of me on that one, but that that sounds like a good one. Um, so AP decided to run this photo, and the reason was because they wanted to show that those statistics were real people. Now, is that appropriate or not? A case can be made in either direction. 
The students feel that that's an invasion of privacy. The students feel that that man who died, that soldier who died, uh, and his family have rights of privacy, and that AP, they think, was just being sensational and was trying to draw attention to, the, to their picture and their photographer. Whereas AP was saying, no, that's not all what we were doing. We were trying to be responsible journalists by fully informing the public and letting them know people were getting real live people who had families, who, who in some cases had children, uh, were getting uh, killed in a war that we, the taxpayers, were paying for. That was their side. So what do you do in this situation? I guess it, that's a case-by-case basis, I can tell you that much. Exactly, I mean... and that's how journalism ethics should be decided, in a case-by-case basis. Now, the problem there is that takes time, and it takes effort on the part of the journalist to weigh it in a case-by-case basis. That's right. I, Because uh, I look at, like, even putting JFK's funeral on live television. I mean, it's an invasion into the privacy of Jackie Kennedy. Um, I'm sure she probably had her own goodbyes off camera. And well, things of that there sort. was that, and also showing her in the bloody dress. And not only that, but showing a little John John saluting. All of those things. Well, LBJ raising his hand, getting sworn in, and he waited for the press to get there so he could have it publicly official that here's me you're automatically president when kennedy dies that was the jerk thing that he did but the the whole thing with the wedding that is a moment or not wedding up the funeral of jfk was because the public needed closure as much as jackie did um like i said i'm sure that there was closure for her before that or after that i know um when they buried him and everything there was a whole different thing that wasn't really broadcasted as much but then it's the same thing with even with oswald they exhumed oswald they dug him up and made sure that he was in that casket because the public needed an answer i mean i do do we consider the families do we consider margaret do we consider robert i don't know that was his brother that's getting re-dug up all because the public wants to know if it's really oswald buried in that casket i mean do we do ethics on there as well too only person i saw that or know about that really stood against um re-digging somebody up was Connolly's wife Connolly's wife refused to probably could have solved a lot of answers right now, but what about the magic bullet? Because Connolly had more fragments in his leg than were missing from the magic bullet. And she said, no, you're not digging up my husband to go take pieces of bullet out of his bone. So, I mean, what do you do? Do you, do you, do you yell at her and say, well, this is history. History is more important. Or do you respect her wishes? I mean, it's a case-by-case basis, but it's a, I wouldn't want to be the one that makes the call for that. Well, uh, now the things we're talking about, I just want to point out, such as Lance Corporal Bernard and the Associated Press, these are considerations that professional journalists are taught to do. That's why I say it's a process. And uh, some of the citizen journalists, not saying all of them, some of the citizen journalists are totally unaware of it. And they want more than anything to draw an audience. So we've got uh, some people out there who claim to be doing journalism, and in some cases claim to be journalists, who are crossing these lines that you are talking about without even knowing it, really, or certainly without giving it consideration. And uh, that's sad. I've, I, I'm going to relate a personal experience to this because for the past couple of months, I've been so deeply vested into the JFK topic. Uh, but through... A lot of people will tell you, oh, this kid's just looking for attention or this kid's just looking for views. I don't I don't need that. I think once you kind of start diving into the JFK subject, I've looked over 32,000 things of document. I've tried to talk to Blakey, all these people. I've done it. Um, the best example I could give you would be what William Law said to me. And when he made his book, you know, he interviewed with Lifton. He did all these people, uh, the two FBI agents that carried the casket. Uh, that had Kennedy in it. 
when he's doing all these interviews and doing the proper journalistic effort to go understand a lot about the medical autopsy and things of that sort. And then he goes to one of these conferences and they show JFK at the conference, you know, on screen driving through Dallas and the people that he interviewed that experienced it in real time, start crying. And then he feels affected because he realized that every year, these people have to relive this anniversary have to be dragged through the same pain of that day. And he even told me like it affected him. And, you know, he's friends with these people. He develops a relationship with those people, much like I've developed relationships from people through my show or through the Kennedy assassination in general. And you kind of, you can see where people would do it to make a profit, but then there's people that just want to get what they feel like might be some injustice wrong. And it's like, what is, where do we draw the line with ethics? How far does someone go? Is it seen in a better light when someone's doing something because they want the truth? But the same exact thing can be seen in the wrong light if someone's just doing it for profit. You know, it's shaky grounds, per, like I said, case per, by case basis, I guess, when it comes to journalistic effort. But it, when you put it in that context, you respect journalism a little bit more. And I feel like the public hasn't really gotten the full side of journalism. We kind of see the slam pieces. Um, I respect journalism a lot, mostly from the conversations I've had from the people that have done the investigative work that they've done. Um, that's why I don't consider myself a journalist. But hearing uh, the amount of work that people put into and then it being lumped in the same category as someone that might just be, you know, talking about Trump farted in a restaurant or something like that, like <laughs> it's I feel like you can't weigh both of those things with the same exact you know, scale. Yeah, journalism is a lot of work. It's it's hard work, uh, and it takes a lot of time. And because it takes a lot of time, it takes a significant amount of money uh, to be able to um, pay the journalists, etc. Um, when I did, when I put in the first FOIA request, um, having to do with a book I was writing, uh, I got rejected, and and I thought I shouldn't have been rejected. So living here in DC, I thought I want to find the best FOIA lawyer that I can find to give me some advice. And I was directed to a man named Jim Lassar. And Jim Lassar was a lawyer with the Kennedy Commission. And uh, I told him the book I was working on, told him what happened, and asked him if I could take him to lunch one day and pick his mind and he agreed and so he looked at the letter I had sent in and he told me oh they're they're tripping you up on a couple of words in here here's how you need to do it and he told me how to do it I put it in and I got the FOIA material which, and now I've gotten quite a lot uh, and I have they, even downstairs quite a lot uh, from the FBI and and even into the CIA with the and with the CIA I was researching a journalist in the 1950s who was with the Associated Press, uh, based in Prague, and uh, he was arrested for being a spy and put in prison and, and tortured there, and it became an international incident. And I, and I got his his records from uh, not only from the CIA, but uh, I made enough contacts that I even got his records from the former secret police of the Czech Republic. Um, but I have worked with a lot of those, and yeah, it takes a lot of work. Um, and that's one of the characteristics of being a journalist that, that you just can't miss. And that is an insatiable appetite for information, an insatiable curiosity of what went on, why it went on. And that's what we teach in, in a journalism school is a who, what, when, why, and how that journalists need to find out to communicate to the public. I just got one last question for you, but do you ever get nervous or scared sometimes when you start digging into something that you know is going to end up being a big story? Oh, absolutely. Um, I uh, got some under FOIA, some documents about a, um, I was doing investigative journalism in uh, Richmond, Virginia. And uh, I got documents showing that a school for uh, emotionally disturbed kids in Pennsylvania uh, was flunking its inspections. Well, the reason I stumbled onto that is because Virginia 
rather than spending money to take care of these kids in Virginia, were shipping them to Pennsylvania to save money. And so um, with these government documents, I needed pictures because I worked for a TV station. So we rigged up a concealed camera and I talk about this with my students, uh, concealed camera. And I, I got into the school with, with a church group. I just fell in with them. And why nobody asked me, who, who is that? I don't know. But they didn't. Uh, sometimes when you look like you know what you're doing, people assume you know what you're doing. And so I, and I went, I took the pictures, I did the story. And the night that it aired, I was an absolute nervous wreck because I thought, okay, what have I overlooked? Uh, what one document did I misread? What did I misinterpret? What one person uh, has a different view that would change all of this? And so the thing about it is when you're a journalist, when you're embarrassed in a situation like that, you're publicly embarrassed. It's like being, being lashed in, in public, in the public square. It's not like making a mistake at the, the back office at the doctor's office. Nobody, one person might know, but in journalism, so yes, uh, very much, uh, very much nervous at the time. But then when I pressed Virginia's nose against the glass and showed them the ramifications of what they were doing, they uh, held hearings and they came up with ways to protect these kids better, to make sure that they were getting better care. And that's the payoff. Well, Ed, I appreciate what you do. Um, I also well, appreciate... I appreciate what you do. This is terrific. You uh, clearly uh, have a high standards yourself in, in doing this. And yeah, okay, you don't tell both sides. Well, that's not what an interview show is about. I mean, cl clearly you could go and find someone in the public domain who speaks uh, the opposite of what I'm saying and interview them. And and your job is to find out from them their perspective. And that helps fuel the public discussion. So, uh, no, I, I, I wish more podcasters were, were following uh, the lead that you set here. And I'm not saying that just to pump you up, but, uh, but it's very, very important. And I knew that from the examples that you, uh, you sent me uh, on YouTube. So, uh, so I appreciate your, and mainly, as I said in my first email to you, it's not your interest in me that I appreciate. I've, I've never been one who wants the spotlight. I appreciate your interest in my work and the, uh, the journalism I have done and the academic research that I have done, which has to do with that uh, McCarthy era, which was my dissertation, by the way. I know we didn't go into uh, a lot of the specific details of uh, some of your books, but I wanted to get your perspective on journalism in general because you know you've done extensive good work on it, and um, I appreciate the time you gave me. I know we had a wide discussion. Is there a place where people can find your links? Yeah, I have my own website, um, and it's uh, my name Edward uh, Alwood uh, crammed together uh, dot com. But if you Google me, uh, my name, Edward, I write it under Edward because, because, because there's the same number of letters in Edward that there are in my last name, and it just looks better. So uh, if, you, if you type in Edward, you'll, uh, you'll come up with uh, a link to my website. Well, I'm going to link it all in there. And that also has a link to, uh, to my uh, email address, so it's there. Well, I'm going to link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure, pleasure chatting with you, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.